Habakkuk makes two big complaints to God. And from his perspective, he is perplexed. And so he waits. Perhaps that's the hardest thing to do when we look at life with all of its trauma. So chapter 2 and verse 1. This is the Lord's reply now and response. Habakkuk chapter 2, 1. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy, or, or the word, as insatiable as the grave. And like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him? with ridicule and scorn, saying, and now there unfolds a series of five woes. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim because... You have plundered many nations. The people who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain. To set his nest on high. To escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples. Shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stone of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? That nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. 
You've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. And the summing up. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it? Or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Last Sunday we looked at Habakkuk chapter 1. It was a bit of a traumatic uh, sermon full of uh, a sense of despair. And Habakkuk looks at life and he comes to the conclusion and the conviction that there are certain things about God that he doesn't like. He is not questioning the existence of God He's questioning the character of God. We left Habakkuk and perhaps ourselves to some extent perplexed and bewildered. Why do events happen and it seems that God doesn't do anything about it? From Habakkuk's perspective... He says that God is inconsistent. It's the only conclusion that he come to, can come to, as you see in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 2. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? How must I pray? And I'm beginning to think that my prayers are auto-suggestion. Just speaking to myself. I cry out of violence, but you do not save why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Why? Some people think that when believers ask why, that uh, that is a denial of their faith. I don't think so. We should have the courage and boldness not to pretend. So from his perspective, which seems perfectly legitimate, God is inconsistent. And secondly, from chapter 1 and verse 13, he makes a further statement that God is indifferent. God is indifferent. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then, why then, in the light of your character, do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? In other words, it's the age-old problem. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why does it seem that good things happen to bad people? People who don't even believe in you seem to be blessed immeasurably. And the people who trust in you and want to follow you seem to have so many troubles and trials. 
Well, of course, there's nothing new about that. I guess every generation who genuinely looked to God should ask those problems. That is not a denial of the faith. Taken to its logical conclusion, then, if God is all-powerful, he could prevent evil and suffering, by definition. He could. If he is, he could do that. Secondly, if God is all-loving, not only he could, but he would want to. Because it's his character. He would want to prevent evil and suffering. In our world, then and now, evil and suffering abound. So much. Therefore, God is impotent, loveless, or actually, he doesn't exist at all. He's merely the figment of our imagination perpetrated by religious people who may mean well, but actually have no substance to it. Now, that sort of thing is not unusual. However, could, if you stay there just for a moment, if, if you could say this, that human logic, in other words, our perspective, legitimate though it might seem, human logic is often out of step with divine providence. God has a bigger canvas and a bigger perspective than us. He is, by definition, eternal. And we, mere creatures of time, just pass this in, in our period in history and then we are gone. And so, I think William Cowper, that interesting introvert and depressive hymn writer from Olney, not very far from here, would say, would remind us, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Not only is it good poetry, but it's also good theology. So, we come now to chapter 2, if that's just a, some sort of summary of, of where, where we've been. And just to make one or two comments now. There he is, perplexed, bewildered. God is inconsistent. God is indifferent. God is blind to his people's need. He is silent to their prayer. He seems unmoved by their cry. I think as Christian people, we need to say, as I often say at funerals, we are more than body and brain. We have a spirit. Deny, to deny that is to deny our essential, intrinsic humanity and to deny the work of God's grace in the lives of people. So whatever our logic, let's be willing to humble ourselves before God and see and ask him to show the bigger picture. Chapter 2 actually brings more light and less raw emotion on the part of the prophet. We often say, don't we, we need more light and less heat. And that's what we have here in chapter 2. I want to give you a quote. It will come up here from uh, the great uh, Jim Packer. 
um, in his book, The, the Sovereignty of God. Just try to just read it as, as it's there, and I, I'll read it to you. Just to pause for a moment as we come to chapter 2, that we, as Christian people who profess to know and love the Lord, we need to realize that you cannot rightly understand God's ways at any point till you see them in the light of his sovereignty. In other words, you will face, on on the law of averages, you're probably in a situation now where things are happening in your life personally and you can't make any sense of it at all. And you say, where is God in this? You will never make sense of that if you just stay there from your, your own small perspective. We need to realize that you cannot rightly understand God's ways at any point till you see them in the light of his sovereignty. He is the sovereign Lord. And even if you don't understand, you must trust. Otherwise, you're going to get stuck in the, in the backwaters of embitterment and disillusionment and be unfruitful in your Christian life. He is the sovereign Lord. And so, contrary to all our impressions, nationally, globally, as we think of the the nations meeting with global warming, as we try to have a bigger canvas of what's going on, this this is the conviction. God is working his purpose out. He is at work on a bigger scale. And contrary to all our perspectives... Personally, come back to our own lives, our own relationships, our our aspirations, desires, legitimate though they may be, trials and tragedies, sicknesses and injustices, the, the sheer unfairness of human life, if you like, or man's inhumanity, which sometimes hits us in the face. This is it. God is working his purpose out. You have to see that. Otherwise, you won't make sense, certainly not the book of Habakkuk and and many other parts of God's word. Now, I was tempted to launch into these five woes, and they are fascinating and interesting, particularly as as they would apply to us. But we, we, for the sake of time and uh, coming to the Lord's table, just have a a brief overview of uh, chapter 2. Thinking for a moment of God's apparent injustice, Habakkuk raises the question, why? Why does a holy God apparently turn a blind eye to evil? And how can he, the sovereign Lord, the holy God, use a ruthless, godless nation to judge his people? That is a problem. The answer that the Lord gives is not the one that he was expecting. We start with him waiting. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 1 stations himself on the ramparts, whatever that means, some sort of perspective, waiting to hear what God will say to him. And the answer calls for faith which involves faithful perseverance. Maybe that's all you're going to get. Now, is, is that, perhaps that's not good enough for you. 
But what's your, what's your alternative? And so, in these dark situations, the contrast of two responses, there you have it in, cha- in chapter 2 and verse 4. See, look around you at human pride and arrogance. His desire is not upright. But in contrast to that, the people of faith, the righteous will live by his faith or through his or her faithfulness. What's the application? Well, it is for Habakkuk, and it might well be for you, if not now, certainly in the future, that it is in the depths of pain and doubt and bewilderment that he encounters God afresh. And he hears God's word differently. So I would say to you and to myself that we should not run away from the nagging doubts, the emotions that are wounded, that are hurt within us. What are you to do? Don't suppress them. Bring them to God. Bring them to Him. He is your Father in confidence that He is safe enough and sovereign enough to deal with them and bring good out of ill. So let's look at the chapter under two uh, headings where there is now just some change of perspective in two ways. And we're going to choose these uh, two verses which are the sort of vistas of new light and new hope. In chapter chapter 2 and verse 4 is the patience of faith. We are such a frenetic people. What do you want me to do? And the Lord says, I just want you to wait. I want you to wait. That's a big ask, isn't it? Our busy lives. The patience of faith. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. You see verse 3, the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false, though it linger. Wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Wait. Wait. But this is the point. It isn't just waiting in some sort of vacuum, right? It is waiting in contrast to people who are entirely against faith in God. In a secular age, increasingly, people who are full of their own plans, their own importance, in in the face of human arrogance and pride and godlessness, we are to wait in faith. We are to wait in faith. It's interesting that when the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to the church in Rome, I'd just like you to turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, just to see what Paul does with this verse. He borrows it. And in a sense, it's quite legitimate for me to borrow it uh, tonight. And here is a great empire. The global superpower par excellence, Rome. What does Paul do? Well, he quotes this obscure prophet, Habakkuk. Romans chapter 1. Verse 16 and 17. 
It's for sure the people around him were very cynical. Greeks needed signs and learning and so forth. But what does what Paul say to the church at Rome, these believers, hiding in the catacombs, pilloried by the Roman Empire? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first to the last. And he quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4. You'll see a footnote in your Bible. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Not very much, is it? Being fed to the lions, the superpower. Not very much. Enough, enough, enough. So that we not only survive, and Rome has gone, and the kingdom of our God and his Christ continues apace. It's a very powerful thing, isn't it? The patience of faith. This faith, which is the gift of God, lived out in patience and obedience. A very powerful thing. Very powerful indeed. And secondly, not only the patience of faith that seems irrelevant and marginalized by the cynics of society, but it's enough. It's enough. And secondly, the providence of God. It's a lovely word uh, to provide. Hence, God is ahead of the game. Always, always. Not reacting to, just ahead. Trust him. No knee-jerk response. He knows the end from the beginning. And in the midst of these woes and the inconsistencies and, and the injustices of life, there's a time coming. Try to live in that vision. There is a time coming. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, as you find it in verse 14. So if, a, if patient faith in the context of the opposite, cynicism and human arrogance, now the providence of God in the context, interestingly, of man-made religion. We are incurably religious people. And if there was no religion, we would invent one. Which we do. The gods of modernity. And the ancient gods. An integral part of this innate part of our nature. A worshipping soul. So, in the context of man-made religion, why do we say that? Well, look at the end of the chapter. Verse 18 and 19. Now you can see the modern equivalent of all of this. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it? Or, or an image that teaches lies. Ours is the age of the image, the visual age, which is pumped out to us all the time, everywhere, pressurized, especially at Christmas, the image that tells lies. Well, who are you going to trust? Read on in verse 18, for he, makes it, for, for he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up, 
Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But, where, come back to the question that we started, which is a haunting question for many people. Where is God? When? 9-11? When? Injustices on a bigger scale? Where is he? I hope that you would have the courage to read Habakkuk chapter 2. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. There's a place for asking. There's a place for complaining. Sure enough, that's, that's the heart of the prophecy. There's also a place for trusting. There's also a place for waiting. And in the providence of God, he says, let the earth be silent before him. We need to ask ourselves today, living in a very wealthy part of the world as we do, reputed to be, was it one of the fourth wealthiest, fourth, fifth wealthiest countries in the whole world? Here we are tonight. We need to ask ourselves, living in, in this part of the world, where are the modern idols that control us? What, let's put it in a, in a different way. What is our value system? We value what we do. We do what we value. What are our values? That's the question that's been asked in verse 18, and it's very pertinent, isn't it? Not obscure at all. What, what are the modern idols that so dominate our time, influence our lives, determine our values? And so verses 18 and 19 ask the question. And in contrast, here is the Sovereign Lord. The tragedy is that we can hold a faith in God and yet at the same time allow our lives to be dominated by the gods of this world. And as a consequence, slowly they lead us from a relationship with God that is one of trust and faith. That actually you say, oh yes, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I, I came to faith and I trusted in the Lord. But from now on, I'm on my own and it's up to me. That sort of shift, I'm sure it's a, it's a bigger problem for, for me and for you than, than what we realize. They, they, as a consequence, lead us from a life of faith which alone saves us and transforms us. God's divine promise to Habakkuk is this. There's a bigger picture. There's a bigger picture. So what we need to do is to put our perspective into God's perspective and see the bigger plan and then trust. Trust Him. God's divine promise to Habakkuk, verse 14, was given to Isaiah a century before. Just look to uh, Isaiah 11. No, I, yes, Isaiah chapter 11. As we think of Advent, okay? Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6. 
Look at this. The promise given to Habakkuk was given to Isaiah a century before. And this is the second Sunday in Advent. A branch from Jesse. Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. What is that? It's, it's a promise that God, in his providence, is working on a bigger scale. And we try to put our lives, where we are tonight, into the bigger picture of what he's going to do. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, not just for Christmas, but all of our lives, all of our lives. And he is the same sovereign Lord who came in glory in the coming of Jesus. And he is, now then, these are the unique credentials that we see that Habakkuk and Isaiah didn't or anticipated. And it's this, yes, he's the sovereign Lord, but he's the suffering Savior. Isaiah saw it, didn't he, in Isaiah 53, of course. But we live with the cross now behind us. And we see a bigger picture of God's redeeming plan. A suffering Savior. And so, the birth of Jesus, you shall call his name. Jesus, he will save his people. He's a Savior. And he's the sovereign Lord. And what can we do? Trust him. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. I hope then, as we conclude, that this book, and as we shall see in perhaps even a greater way next Sunday, encourages us to see the world now through a different lens. And perhaps to see our lives mirrored more in the image of God than ours. And to re-evaluate our simplistic analysis and if we can do that, as we were singing this morning, our God is an awesome God. Stand in awe of him and be silent before him. And wait that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And keep trusting.